Good morning. It's good to see you guys. My name is Tim Udodge. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm also um, being sent from this church to plant downtown Prez's uh, first church here in Greenville. It's called Grace and Peace Presbyterian. Uh, many of you have kind of followed along as we've progressed, and we've been meeting on Wednesday nights, kind of in the planning stages uh, since January, and our hope is to begin worshiping and so on Sunday mornings, uh, starting early fall or, or August. And so just ask for you to pray for us, um, give us guidance and give us wisdom. Um, also to pray for the folks in Greenville who maybe haven't heard the gospel, um, folks that are in the area where we'll be, that um, you'll begin preparing really people to hear uh, the message, the same message that we preach here, um, just in another part of the city. Well, this morning, we're picking back up after a little break for Easter. We're picking back up with the David story. And if you're familiar with the Bible, um, you know that there's a lot recorded about the life of David, um, probably more than anybody else in the Bible. We have a lot of details about his life. And if you like stories, well, this story is just a great story. It's got all the elements of a great story that, that David is kind of found when he's a nobody. He's out in the fields He's the youngest in the family. He's not even invited in when Samuel comes because they don't think he's very relevant, but it turns out that David is incredibly relevant, and he's relevant to God, that God chooses him, in fact, to be the next king over all of Israel. And if you're reeled in by that story, you realize what happens next um, is, 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 is pretty tough because David, who's been anointed king, has got this one little problem. There's a king who's still on the throne. And that king isn't really um, excited about this young kid um, who, who's coming up and slaying giants. And, you know, soon, very soon, this, this King Saul is chasing after David. And David's life becomes very hard. David's sleeping in caves. He's running for his life. But as we get to this point in the story, a lot of those things have already happened in their past. And David's life has become pretty different. He's in the palace. He's now king. He's on his throne. Um, there's many victories that have been given to David. And there's a sense in which he's pretty, he's pretty comfortable. And what we're going to find this morning is that as you read kind of the rest of his story, if you've heard some of the rest of his story, you kind of always thought you were going to hear about really the biggest challenge that David had being on the battlefield or, or being in a cave as, as Saul's chasing after him. But what we find this morning is really his biggest struggle and his, really, his biggest battle um, took place in the comfort of his own palace, and it was a struggle with his own heart. The Bible's pretty um, stark and, and raw sometimes, and this passage definitely is as well. Um, it's probably a little PG-13, and I think some of the sermon will be as well. So now that we've got all the 13 and under attention in the room, um, please hear God's Word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? 
So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing, how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David sent to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are, campa- are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem and that, that day and the next and David invited him, and he ate in, the present, in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask that he would help us to to understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to you um, all hearts are open and all desires are known. And there's no secrets that are hidden from you. That you see all things and you know all things. And so, Father, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it, the record of it, that this morning we can sit and read of David's life, and we pray that it would be like a mirror, that you might show us ourselves, that you might show us ways in which our own hearts are often deceived. And Father, we pray that most of all that you would point us to your son, Jesus, that even by seeing our own sin, we might turn and see him more clearly, that we might cling to him more dearly. We ask this only in his name. Amen. It seems like all of us um, probably, even in our culture, we're drawn to stories about heroes, aren't we? We love a good story about somebody who has kind of risen above the norm. Um, we like to think of there, there's somebody out there who must be 
extraordinary, and we're drawn to it. We love, we love those types of stories, and it seems like especially the world of sports lends, himself, lends itself uh, to the hero type of story. If you're, a, if you're a basketball fan, then you've probably, you probably know sort of the, the name on everyone's lips right now is Steph Curry and the, and the Golden State Warriors, and every time he gets the ball and he tries to shoot it from, you know, 10 feet back from the three-point line, everyone has their fingers crossed, and they want him to make it because there's a part of us, there's a part of us that wants somebody to be extraordinary. Well, from 1997 to about 2009, there's no one who fit that definition, especially in the world of sports, probably more than Tiger Woods. I mean, even his, his name, I mean, he's named Tiger. Tiger Woods seemed to be completely invincible, that he was above everybody else to such a degree that golf courses were beginning to change their course layout so that they would detract from his excellence and give everybody else a chance. For 281 consecutive weeks, he was the number one golfer in the world. That corporations loved him. He was the face of Nike. He seemed to have everything going for him, more prosperity, more success than any of us could ever dream of. And then in 2009... The, the curtain was kind of pulled back, and then it was thrown back. And what we saw is that there was a chink in Tiger Woods' armor. And slowly but surely, the number of infidelities that he had committed began to roll out, and woman after woman after woman was coming forward and talking about their exploits that they had with Tiger Woods. And we all watched this one who seemed to be so invincible. We watched him take this enormous fall. And in 2010, he had a press conference where he talked about it, and he said this, I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to. I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled, and thanks to money and fame, I didn't have to go far to find them. I was strong, I was wrong, and I was foolish. And it's almost as much as we love the story of a hero when we watch somebody who seems to be that invincible. When we watch them fall, it's like we cannot take our eyes off of it. And there's this strange mixture of being disappointed, but there's also this this strange sense of, of comfort. Because we know that if you pull back the curtain on our own hearts, we know what's there. And there's a strange sense of comfort in knowing that even these people who seem to be so extraordinary are actually pretty frail as well. I think if you you stop the average person on the street and you ask them, what do you know about David? What do you know about David in the Bible? I, I don't have any statistics on this. I haven't run this survey, but I can imagine that nine out of 10 people are gonna talk about this story. They're going to talk about the story of David and Bathsheba. They're going to talk about the fact that this was a man who, Scripture says he was a man after God's own heart, and yet he was an adulterer, and he was a murderer. And I think that the reason, uh, obviously, that people remember the story is that it resonates with them that the Bible doesn't cover this up, 
In fact, the Bible puts this right in front of us. That it allows us, it's been recorded for us so that we can read it here in church again this morning. That we've read about the explicit sin of David. The Bible does this with all, really, all of its characters. I mean, all of them that you want to begin to say that this is the next one who's going to be the hero. I mean, you think about Abraham, and you think, so, so faithful in so many ways, so faithful in so many ways. And then there's points in which he lies and basically sells his wife into sexual slavery in order to protect himself. And you think about Moses, and he's so faithful in so many ways, and then there's points in which he flies into fits of rage. And you think about Peter defending Jesus and always speaking up and always wanting the truth to go forth, and then Peter denying Jesus three times. If you come away from the Bible, you know, thinking that the Bible is simply going to give you a few pointers, a few rules, a few things to kind of fix your heart or to kind of make you in to the one who's the hero, then, then you really, you're not reading the same Bible that's before us this morning. David was a man who was honorable in many ways. He was a man after God's own heart, and yet this is part of his heart. And I want to look at that this morning. I want to look um, just at two things, at the deceitfulness of our hearts, and I want to look at the one who is greater than our hearts. The deceitfulness of our hearts and the one who is greater than our hearts. A number of years ago, um, the actor Woody Allen got caught in a scandal, a pretty nasty scandal. It turned out he was in a relationship with his girlfriend's daughter. And being caught in this situation, he channeled the words of Emily Dickinson in order to sort of excuse his behavior. And those words were this, the heart wants what the heart wants. The heart wants what the heart wants, or we can give a more modern interpretation of that from the great theologian Sheryl Crow, who said, if it makes you happy, then it can't be that bad. And I know that sitting in a room with with this many people, that there is a long lineage of broken homes and broken marriages and wounded childhood and sexual abuse that all comes out of that logic. The heart wants what the heart wants. And I don't think any of us in this room, I I don't think any of us could say that we haven't been victims to some degree of that logic. If you've been in a relationship with anyone in your life, then you've been victim to some degree of that logic, that the heart wants what the heart wants. But I think the thing that we don't want to see about ourselves, and we don't want to confess is that we've also been proponents of that logic. That all of us, if we're, if we're honest, if we're, if we're honest as, I guess, Woody Allen was honest, then we'll say that there's many times in our life when really what drives us is this notion that this is what my heart wants right now. This is what I want to please me. But God tells us something in Jeremiah that shows us that that following our hearts is really a pretty bad idea. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things 
and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart wants what the heart wants, says Emily Dickinson, says Woody Allen, but God says the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, deception of the heart is at the heart of sin. Deception of the heart is at the heart of all sin. It's the lie that says to you, you really should look out for number one. You really should put yourself first. It's the lie that says, you know, you've worked hard. It's what Tiger said. You've worked hard. You've really struggled. Don't you deserve this? Don't you, don't you, deserve, don't you deserve this? It's the lie that, that says to us, this thing is going to soothe you. This thing is going to take away the pain. This thing is going to make you feel better, and you should indulge in it. But ultimately, at the heart of all sin is the lie that says that God's design is really not good for you. In fact, it's the lie that, that creeps in that none of us may say out loud, but it's the lie that says that really God's design is meant to keep you away from what is really good. And like I said, most of us probably wouldn't say that, but there's times in our lives and there's times when the deceit has crept in to where what we think is that God is not good. And what God wants for me, he's put me in this situation and it is not good. He's really keeping me away from the thing that is good. And so even somebody as, as gifted and in many ways as noble and as talented and as honorable and as faithful as David had been, and he had been over and over and over again, his heart was still prone to those same lies. And his heart was still prone to that, that same deception. And I think we have to pause there and we have to say there, there's some ways I read the life of David and, and I can clearly see David's a better man than I am. But David wasn't exempt from this. And that means that you and I aren't exempt from this kind of deception either, that no one in the room is exempt from this kind of deception. And we see David's deception in spectacular fashion in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, don't we? I mean, things were going well for him, prosperity, success. Um, all of these things were starting to, to come together. Finally, what God seemed to have promised him was coming together. It seemed like the hard days were finally past, that they were finally behind him. And I think if we look at our own lives, that it's often that way as well. The times that we're most prone to deceit, the times when, and when often we're most prone to believing lies is because we start to think, that some of the things that are going well in our life are because we've somehow shaped them that way, or we've somehow had something to do with it, that we've somehow been strong enough or brave enough or good enough to make our life a certain way, and so we start to think that we're sort of in control. It's, it's when we don't see how weak we actually are that, in essence, we just forget God. And if we were just to be blunt, I would think in this passage, the way that we could sum up was what, what happened is that, is that David just forgot God. He forgot that God was the one who plucked him out of that field. 
That God is the one who had gone before him in battles. That God is the one who had brought him to this place. And that David was still weak and David was frail and he was prone to lies and he was prone to deceit. But he had started to think that he wasn't. So at the time when David should have been, the beginning of this passage makes it really stark and really clear. The time when kings go off to war, when David should have gone with his men, when David should have been in battle, that David remained in Jerusalem. And we find David lying on his couch. When our hearts are deceived, they're usually deceived in our estimation of our own abilities. They're usually deceived in our estimation of our own, of being able to resist or to do certain things. And this is where David found himself. I could handle the war from here. We've been doing pretty well. I can handle the war from my couch. I've got great men in place. I'm going to send them out. I'm going to remain back at home. And I could probably handle a little bit of indulgence because I have been working really hard. And so David takes a stroll up on his roof. And David's probably taken this stroll before. I mean, it's his roof. Maybe he's even, uh, he's got a great view from the roof. Maybe he's the tallest building in Jerusalem. Maybe he's actually taken in this same view that he saw that late afternoon. But this time David said, that's what my heart wants. And my heart wants it right now. And I think I've read before and I've heard this passage taught before in such a way that I think that what's revealed is that we want so badly for David to be the hero. We want so badly for him to be the hero that we make Bathsheba the villain of this story, and she's not. That we want to say, well, surely she was baiting him. Surely she's the one who's to blame. I mean, she's bathing on her rooftop For heaven's sake, I mean, who would be doing that? From what I've read, that was a pretty normal thing to do. It just so happened that David's roof was higher than all the other roofs. Bathing on your roof would would have been a a normal thing to do because it was up high where nobody could see you, but David could see. But we're also told why she was bathing, that she's actually following and observing the law, that she was ritually cleansing herself after her menstrual cycle. It's kind of ironic. And it's at that moment that David said, that's what my heart wants. And the language of this passage, I mean, we could talk about this. I wish we could talk about it longer than we can. The language of this passage turns incredibly abrupt. That the verbs begin to pile on top of one another. Maybe you heard it when I read it, that David, David's the one in control, right? David is the one sending. He's sending messengers He sent, he saw, he sent, he took, and he lay. And then he sent away. There's no conversation that's recorded. That David was in a position uh, of power, that he was a king, that he was the one who got really what he wanted. And that day he said, this is what I want. And he used this woman. He sent messengers and brought her there. He had sex with her, and he sent her back away. That's what happened. And the thing is, I don't know what happened in the moments, I mean, the days, the weeks that followed in between before Bathsheba realized that she had conceived a child. We don't know. 
did David feel remorse? Did he feel like he'd gotten away with something? Did he feel like this was um, simply not a big deal? I don't know. But when you go against God's design, it always ultimately leads to chaos. It just does. And it, it always ultimately is, is going to be exposed it, because it never delivers what it actually promises to deliver. And so things begin to unravel when David, when, when, when Bathsheba sends something. And what she sends is one word in Hebrew, pregnant. I'm pregnant. I mean, you think about that word, you think about the word pregnant, and you think about the joy, like some of you long to hear that word. Some of us have heard that word, and it's one that's usually associated um, with the celebration of the fact that there is this miracle that happened, that there is now new life that's been created. But this time, when this word that should bring joy comes, it instead brings panic. And what David does at this moment, he had a choice. He could have said, what I did, what I did was evil in the sight of God. What I did was wrong. I'm exposed. I, I sent a messenger to this house of Eliam and, and Uriah, two men who were faithful warriors of mine who have been nothing but loyal to me. And the message I sent to them was a message of destruction that I've sinned against them and I've sinned against God and I repent. And he could have done that. But instead he did what we often do is that he began, he began to try to unravel what he had done. He began to try to figure out ways, and David was very smart. David was um, incredibly smart. We've seen how smart he is in the past, and David said, well, what I need to do is I need to get Uriah here, and if I can get Uriah to simply sleep with his wife, then everyone will think, well, of course she's pregnant because he came home from battle, and um, he couldn't resist himself. He, he slept with his wife. And now she's pregnant, and I can get myself out of this. The Bible's, the Bible's pretty earthy. <laughs> it doesn't cover up this plan of David that he baits Uriah again and again and again to the point where his last resort is that he gets Uriah drunk. He says, go to your house. Go to your house. Why don't you go? Why don't you go to your house? That he's using the same logic that made him sleep with Bathsheba. That was the logic basically is, I'm going to stay home and be comfortable. I'm tired. I've worked really hard. This is what my heart wants. He uses the same logic with Uriah. You've been out to battle. Go home. Be comfortable. Enjoy the pleasures of your house. And Uriah, it's his loyalty and his obedience is pitted against the deception and sin of David, making it even more stark that he won't enjoy the comforts of home while his men are on the battlefield. And so when David realizes what this means, that, that Bathsheba is going to have a child, and there's people in his house who know what have happened. Obviously, there's messengers that have sent for her. And this is going to be all over the papers. This is going to be the talk of Jerusalem that David is now going to be exposed, that what he does is he puts a letter into the hands of Uriah that is signing basically his death warrant, that he puts this letter and says, take this to Joab. And Uriah, I mean, if you think about this, Uriah was carrying what would have probably been a small scroll with a seal on it that came from the king, and that was ordering his own death. 
And Joab obeyed and put him on the front lines. And what happened was Uriah was murdered, essentially. And you think about what a hero in, in some ways and, and how we've all been rooting for David and, and how Israel said, we want a king. And in so many ways, David was a great king. And in one chapter, what we see is he falls so dramatically that in one chapter, we see adultery and we see murder. And I just want to pause for a minute, and I want to ask us this question. What is it about sexual sin that is so particularly deceptive and destructive? What is it about sexual sin that is, that is so particularly deceptive and destruction because, de- destructive? Because you know that it is. And so many of, of, of us in this room have experienced that on one level or another. What is it? Well, it's not the answer that is often given is maybe just don't think about this, don't talk about this, um, that sex is sort of something that is taboo or is dirty. It's certainly not that because God created everyone in this room as someone who is a sexual being. And it's funny that it almost makes us a little uncomfortable in church to talk about that, but it shouldn't because God thinks it's beautiful. He created every single part of you. He knows how your body functions. He designed it to actually function the way that, he fu- that it functions because he thinks it's beautiful. And the Bible's very clear that he, he created it this way. He created our sexuality for one particular purpose. And the purpose is so powerful. And the purpose is this, that when I say it, our ears, you'll realize that our ears have been so tuned to think about sex in the wrong ways that when I say what it's actually for, it's going to sound a little bizarre. That God created sexuality so powerful for the purpose of really showing us the way that he feels about us. That God entered into a covenant with his people that Jesus took the same language of marriage, that Jesus took a bride. And God gave us the same reflection that he gave us a covenant of marriage so that when a man and a woman come together in sexual relationship, that what it actually is giving us this dim picture of is the way that God finds pleasure and delights and he finds joy and he loves his bride. That Isaiah says, as a bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so your God rejoices over you. And that is explicitly sexual language. And he's saying, I don't want you to be ashamed of that, that that is very good, that I created it for a purpose. But what we also know is since it's that powerful and it's that good that all of us being people who are fallen and being people who are sinful and being people that are broken, that we take the most beautiful things that God created and the most powerful things that he created and we're bent back inward and we begin to use them for our own purposes. And when we do that, it's no wonder that it's devastatingly destructive. That instead of telling us the truth about God, it begins to tell, it begins to proclaim a lie. That instead of telling us really the truth about who we are, that we are now, because we are in covenant with God, that we are, we are his beloved, that as we enter into to, to sexual sin, it begins to preach a lie back to us. To misuse something with that much power 
is always going to leave a wake of destruction. And so many of us understand that and know it because we've seen it this very week. As I prepared for this, I read this passage. It seems like what God was throwing in front of my face over and over again was not only my own sin, but also infidelity, infidelity, infidelity that one, a, a friend confessed to his wife this week that he had cheated on her. Some of us this morning, it's, it's, hard, it's, it's not fun to talk about this, right? But some of us this morning are caught in a, in a cycle of sexual sin. And we're, we're feeling its destructiveness, but we also feel like we can't get out of it. And some of us this morning are entertaining the idea of infidelity. Some of us are engaged, most likely, in infidelity. Some of us have been through it. Some of us are, are maybe, we think that that's so far away from us, and maybe that's what David thought, but we've been training our minds to think simply only about ourselves for so long that when the situation presents itself, it will make sense that we walk through the same door that David walked through because we think sex is about us. Because at the heart of sin is really the world revolving around us. And I want you to see what happens. This isn't the main point of this passage, but I want you to see what happens in this passage with David is that it leads to more and more deception. And it leads eventually to more and more destruction. And in the end, it doesn't deliver what it seemed to promise that afternoon when David took a stroll on his roof because God has offered him something that is far beyond that to begin with. And so what do we do with that? There's a lot we could talk about. But I, I just want to ask you this morning, if, if we're deceived, we don't know it. And so ask God this morning to, to shine his light into your heart to show ways in which maybe particularly in this way that you might be deceived. That's a hard thing to ask God to do because he'll do it. And ask him to drag it into the light because it's only when it's been drugged into the light that you can finally um, be healed. Don't be afraid to talk. If there's any place where you should be open to talking about this, it should be here. It should be in the church. It, It should be among your brothers and sisters in Christ who also understand that they too are very sexually broken. And so don't be afraid to talk. Grab somebody in your community group and talk to them. Grab one of your pastors. We're very aware of this sin. We're human. But please don't exist in the midst of the church suffering alone. Please don't exist here in the midst of the church, struggling by yourself. That's a tragedy. This is a place where Jesus' light shines so brightly that it does expose, but it does it so that it can heal. And all of this is very depressing, right? Um, all of this, you're thinking, where's the hope in this? And there's a sense in which this passage, it, it's so stark and it's so abrupt in the fact that it ends actually with just simply saying, God has been absent seemingly during this whole thing. But at the end, what we find is that no, he hasn't. God has been watching. And every heart is open to God and he does know all things. And it says that this did displease the Lord. And so you go, well, where's the hope? Where's the hope? I'm going to leave you just with two things to think about. 
And they're subtle in this passage, but they're there, I think. And the first one is this, and it's so simple that if you've been going to church all your life, that this is the first thing that you learn is that Jesus loves and Jesus saves and Jesus uses sinners. And what that means is that Jesus loves and he saves and he uses sexually broken people because that's, let's face it, that's all he's got to work with. And he works through them and he brings healing and he brings restoration. And some of you this morning are hearing this and you're cringing because you're thinking, I am way too far off. You have no idea. After the first service, a man came up to me and talked about the fact that he had been through adultery and been to the other side and how God had continued to use him. You are not too far off for the grace of God that Jesus uses incredibly broken, sinful people, people like David, people like you, people like me. But secondly, and I think maybe the greater point of hope is this, and maybe the greater point of even relief is this, is that the Bible is not a story about David. The Bible is not a story about David being a hero, and this is why the Bible's not afraid to talk about his sin, and it's the reason that we shouldn't be afraid to either, because the story even of our lives is not about us. The Bible's not a story about figuring out ways in order to fix your heart. The Bible is about one who is greater than your hearts, one who knows everything, who's seen everything, and yet has run directly towards you to offer you his love and his grace and his forgiveness. That the Bible in this this passage, it screams Jesus' name because the sin of David cries out for justice. Who is going to pay for this? He's the king. Who's going to pay for this? He's the one we should emulate. Who's Who's going to pay for this? Well, there is one who comes who committed no sin, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. And Jesus took on flesh, and he walked among us, and he walked among sexually broken people. In fact, he was drawn to them in such ways that he offered them forgiveness so that many of them became such effective witnesses that they were ones who knew. The ones who know most that they need forgiveness are the ones who are most grateful and most vocal when they receive it. And we see Jesus over and over and over again offering grace. And what Jesus ultimately does is that Jesus comes to die not for the righteous. He says it with his own words, not for the ones who are well, but Jesus comes to die for the sinner. And this morning, if that's you, the good news of Christianity is that Jesus, he's already seen it. He already knows. There's nothing that can be hidden from him. And that is terrifying. Jake said it earlier. That's a terrifying thought if you didn't know him. Because what he offers you this morning is forgiveness through the death and the resurrection of Jesus so that you too can be given a new heart. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray for those of us who, um, even when the, the subject matter comes up, we become almost instantly just ashamed. I pray for those who this morning are, are stuck. 
and, and sin that is already beginning to reek of destruction. Father, I pray that you would stop them. Father, I pray that this church, this place, that your church would be a place where we can be honest. But, Father, I pray that this would be a place where we find we delight so much in you that all the heinousness of sexual sin would be seen for what it is and that you would cause us to run away, that you would cause us to flee. And our great witness would be the fact that we delight in you. We delight in the design that you've given us. And we see that you do love us and you want what is best for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.